0: This is the story of the American clipper ship. It is a story which took place in the 1850s. It is a story which adds a golden page to the history of the United States merchant marine. This excursion in history is the story of these ships and the men who sail them. The American clipper ship, by its sheer beauty, transformed the designing of ships throughout the world. The clipper was a sleek, thin-waisted thing, and as one mariner once said, the clippers have the head of a dolphin and the tail of a mackerel. In their heyday of the 1850s, these ocean-going greyhounds raced from New York to San Francisco, to China, and back to Boston from there. This was the day and age when a sailor's courage was put to the test. In their brief span of life, the Clipper ships broke every nautical record ever made and established others which remain unchallenged to this day. Clipper was a good name for these ships. In New England, where most of them were built, to clip was a slang expression for the word speed. If you were moving along at a good clip, you were really moving. There had been fast ships before, but nothing like these slender needle-nosed craft with their soaring mast, their forest of spars, and their acres of canvas filled with wind above their decks. Speed showed in every line of the craft. They had concave hulls and slender bodies. This extreme sharpness of the nose and slender body meant, of course, smaller holes for the cargo. But that really didn't matter because the Clippers could deliver what they did have in their holes far faster than any other type of ship. The Clippers would spread clouds of canvas into the sky. In many cases, there would be at least one and a half acres of canvas aloft. The canvas was usually spread from the yard arms, which were attached to the high masts that seemed to scrape the very heavens. It is difficult to say what ship was the very first clipper ever built. Even experts can't agree. However, many authorities give the honor to a ship called the Anne McKim, which was built in Baltimore in 1832. Be that as it may, many leading maritime historians feel that the era of the clipper ship got started in 1843 in New York City. There in 1843, in the Smith and Diamond shipbuilding yards, landlubbers watched a tall sparred ship taking form. Her name was the Rainbow. Most of those who were watching felt that the whole form of the ship was contrary to the laws of nature. Sure, she was a handsome vessel, no doubt about that. But would she sail? That was the question. The rainbow displaced some 750 tons. She was heavier than any ship built in the United States to that time. Most observers felt she would sink to the bottom as soon as she touched the water. Others felt, as they looked at the ship, that she was turned inside out. The merchants who had commissioned the ship to be constructed were Howland and Aspinwall. They were advised that John Griffiths, the designer, had overstepped the first prerequisite of designing a ship. Competitive designers pointed out to Howland and Aspinwall that this new inexperienced draftsman had committed the gravest mistake in designing this ship. Every shipbuilder worth his salt knew one thing. You could either have speed or you could have size. You could not have both. Griffiths listened to the criticisms made by his competitors, but said very little. He pointed out that the rainbow was different. She was meant to be. He had designed her along the lines of the fast Singapore sandpans used by pirates in the South China Seas. She will sail, said Griffiths, and she will carry cargoes in abundance. On February 22nd, 1845, at about 9 a.m., the rainbow was christened. Onlookers held their breath as she slid into the waters of the East River. Well, what do you know about that? She didn't sink. She floated. Her captain was John Land. He was a shaggy-faced husky, Sihuan man. And when interviewed by reporters, he stated that in his opinion, the Rainbow was the fastest ship in the world. Merchants who bought their tea in China would not have to worry about having it spoiled because of the long voyage of the ship. This new clipper, Land went on to say, would make the voyage in a short time and bring the season's first cargo of tea into New York in good condition. Indeed, the owners might well expect to reap a hefty profit. Captain Land was right as the rainbow set new records sailing to and from China. She sailed to China in 92 days and it took her 88 days to return to New York. This type of sailing was a remarkable feat. Yet there were immense dangers especially if a clipper was caught in a squall or storm. The expanse of canvas, with the wind tearing at it, added a strain on the clipper's oversized mast and tore at its supports. A storm could bring the mast to the deck and throw the ship a kilter. More than one sailor heard the tearing of lumber and was crushed to death as the mast tumbled to the deck of the ship almost as bad was being dragged overboard in a maze of ropes and acres of cloth when the mast broke yet the plain fact was that this type of occurrence became commonplace for a clipper ship torn sails cracked ribs patched decks dented heads these became the scars and the symbols of a successful journey speed was what counted for the clipper ship yet many merchants considered clippers too expensive to build and too expensive to operate. Then, on January 24, 1848, James Marshall discovered gold on the American River in California. What a stampede this started. Sailors deserted ships. People quit their jobs. Farmers left their farms. Everyone, it seems, wanted to get to the gold fields, and as quickly as possible. Merchants now became gleeful. This meant business, lots of business, not only passengers but freight. Store goods and everything imaginable would be needed in California. For the merchants California was literally a golden opportunity. The only way people and goods could get to the West with any speed at all was by the clipper ship. Oh, You could go overland, but that was too slow. You could take a ship to the Isthmus of Panama, cross the Isthmus by mule terrain, and take another ship from Panama City to San Francisco. Really, the Isthmian route was far faster. Although it was the fastest, it was also tedious and deadly. One could contract cholera or yellow fever on that 60-mile trail across the Isthmus. The fastest and perhaps less hazardous route to California was by the clipper ship around the Horn. And even this route had its share of risks. As you approached the Cape Horn of South America, you would see jagged islands battered by waves and swept by the spray of the sea. Yes, sir, things got a little hairy. Here was the supreme test for ship and sailor, for in these icy latitudes, Straits and inlets appear on charts in some type of confusion. It was almost impossible to thread a ship through this maze. The journey around the Horn tried the patience of the navigator and taxed the energies of everyone aboard. There were gale winds, sleet, hail, snow, and ice storms here. There was anything but calm seas to mark the passage. Some of the old time sailors, salts, as they are known, claim that the squalls near the horn were so strong that once when a crewman opened his mouth to say something, the wind blew him inside out. And if a man wasn't blown inside out, the weather was so cold that he almost froze to death. Many's the time when the wheelsman looked like a statue with his weather side covered with snow and ice. When high seas came up on the horn, a ship's deck would be flooded day after day sometimes when the bow of the ship went under a huge wave the crewmen would wonder if the bow would ever come up again despite all the hazards the clipper ships were the only ships capable of covering the route to san francisco with any sort of speed every cargo that reached california fetched a fancy price miners gladly paid 60 dollars a barrel for flour $15 for a shovel, $40 a quart for whiskey, and fantastic prices for every other item. Even eggs, which had mellowed beyond belief after a ride in the hole of a clipper ship around the horn, were grabbed up at $10 a dozen. At these prices, few merchants quibbled over the freight rates charged by clipper owners to move their wares to California. Clipper owners charged as much as $60 a ton compared to the $14 per ton charged by slower ships these rates seem scandalous yet few clipper ships ever left port with an empty inch of space aboard them many merchants rather than divide the profits with some middleman commissioned their own clipper ships to be built the undertaking however was rather costly It wasn't uncommon to pay as much as $100,000 to construct a clipper ship. One might think that $100,000 was rather costly, but the fact is that with one voyage from New York to San Francisco, a merchant could average about $70,000 profit from the cargoes he carried. One ship, the Staghound, raced to California, dumped her cargo, sped to Manila and Canton where it loaded with tea. Then the ship headed toward New York, around Cape Good Hope, Africa. The staghound accomplished this feat in less than 11 months. The first trip made by this ship paid for the ship, the salaries of the crews, and gave its owners a neat $8,000 profit dividends such as these brought forth a shipbuilding spree the likes of which had not been seen since the days of the spanish armada clippers were built in less than five months perhaps the most beautiful clippers ever seen were built by donald mckay an east boston shipbuilder so beautiful and so fast were the ships he designed that McKay became known as the Michelangelo of the sailing ships. The clippers were built of the best oak, southern pine, and hackmatack. Copper was fastened and sheeted with Taunton yellow metal. Stanchions and fife rails shone with mahogany, rosewood, and brass. Some ships even boasted of having a library worth $1,200 aboard. The topsides of the clipper ships were painted a dull black, which brought out their lines like a black velvet dress shows off the beauty of a woman. Next, stripes would be painted around the hull of the ship. Some ships had crimson stripes, others had gold stripes, and every clipper ship had a distinctive figurehead beneath the bowsprit. But tall spars and sharp lines alone did not make a clipper ship. She also required a captain with a great seafaring knowledge. He had to be a man who enjoyed the speed of a clipper and a man who would leave nothing undone to strengthen his ship. The captain's life was a lonely one, for the massive clipper ship demanded his unswerving attention and respect. Many captains never slept in their bunks from the beginning to the end of their voyage. Usually, the captain would catnap for an hour or so in calm seas, and even then he would be listening to the creaks of the ship for any odd sounds. As for the seaman, his life aboard a clipper ship was dangerous and demanding. Only the brawniest seaman could furl topsail on a great clipper ship. It took courage to climb the ropes to the 80-foot yard arms, which bent from the mast like huge whalebones. Furthermore, as the seaman was climbing aloft, he had to keep an eye out for the great blocks, which were beating about like frails in the wind. Once past these, he had to watch for the duck sails, slatting in the wind with enough force to crush a man's ribs. Some masters of the ship were extremely cruel to work with and once at sea a seaman lost all of his liberties even the simplest of civil rights was suspended until the end of the voyage a cruel captain could make that voyage a nightmare for any seaman the ship's masters who were cruel usually had a difficult time recruiting men for a voyage on his vessel so Usually the captain would resort to what was called shanghaiing. Boarding house operators, saloon keepers, ladies of the waterfront, all kept their eyes open for prospective crewmen. The prospective crewman would usually be given knockout drops in his drink, or he was given a Shanghai cigar, which was loaded with opium. Once the recruit was unconscious, he was carried aboard the outbound ship. When daylight dawned and the recruit came to his senses, he discovered he was signed aboard on a ship as an able-bodied seaman. As the groggy-headed unfortunate who had been shanghaied sobered up, he soon discovered that he had nothing on his person except his clothes. Furthermore, since he had no money, he was expected to work on the cruise for his food. The captain would see to it that he got food, if he worked. The new recruit soon found out that he need not look forward to receiving any wages for his work either, for the captain had paid the Shanghire his first three months' wages. Since the clothes on his back were hardly suitable for work aboard a ship, the recruit now had to go further into debt by purchasing his jumper, sea boots, and sou'wester at fantastic prices from what was called the ship's slop chest. The food the seamen ate looked as if it came from the same place. The sailor ate what was called dandy junk. It was a heavy pudding made from mashed up navy biscuits, boiled in molasses, and fortified with fat scraps from the cooking pot. At times, the mixture was fortified with salt pork, hard bread, and potatoes if the seaman didn't like it he could go hungry water was also at a premium on the ship usually a sailor's water allotment called for him to have a gallon of water per day this was to be used for drinking and bathing however the seaman rarely used it for bathing the only defense a seaman had was his body odor if he bathed the way his own body odor chances were the odor from his fellow seamen would knock him out. In 1853, no less than 145 clipper ships cleared the port of San Francisco, and even though many clippers showed a handsome profit for their efforts, there soon became more clipper ships available than there were cargoes to haul. All these clipper ships now began to act as a glut on a slackening market. By 1855, freight rates dropped to $10 a ton. That is, if you could find any freight cargo to haul. Also, the completion of the Panama Railroad in 1855 across the isthmus of Panama cut deeply into the clipper ship's trade. The dash around Cape Horn and the risking of a ship and its cargo made no sense whatsoever now. Not only that, steamships were now appearing in ever-increasing numbers. The iron ships, with their screw propellers, promised regular fixed schedules. That was something clipper ships could never do. The end of the golden age of the clipper ship was coming as shipbuilders were building more and more steamships. Only six clipper ships were built in 1854. None were constructed after that. Nevertheless, the glory days of the clipper ship lingered on for a while, but eventually they began to disappear from the sea. Some of the clipper ships ran themselves to death. Others died a horrible death As they were allowed to rot in the backwaters of some harbor many died in a gallant manner as they went down at sea during a violent storm fighting to the very end for their existence very few of the clipper ships ever died of old age and so the Yankee clipper ships now slip into the pages of the past and as they do they also slip into a small corner of our heart and mind. For men will never again see the likes of those grand ships, those cathedrals of the sea. Today, the English-built clipper ship, the Cuddy Sark, is perhaps the last remaining clipper afloat. She is kept in fine shape and is docked on the Thames River. There at the dock, she stands tall and motionless. Her sails are furled, and her spars are vacantly reaching for the skies. Her bowsprit is thrust forward like an outreached hand, waiting anxiously to slap the waves and to journey into the seas as she did before. And it has been said by those who have visited the ship, that if you listen quietly as the wind blows through her masts, you will hear the ship say, Just look at that. All that beautiful wind, just going to waste.